0: Hi guys. Well, get your Bibles. We gotta get right to it. And turn to Psalm one fourteen. That's where I'll begin. Here, Gene. Great to see everybody. Thank God. What a great group. I'm just gonna begin here, Psalm one hundred fourteen. Is that the one I gave you? Okay. Just something on my heart to give us a little bit of a taste of kind of what we're about overall and then we'll get right to the notes. By the way, if you didn't get notes, we were distributing, distributing them at the door. I assume we have some left if you didn't get any. Does anyone need notes? And what we'll try to do for next time is post them either on our um, homemade Mac website or, or just put a PDF file up there somehow. And if you if you bring in a, a, an, whatever, if you want to put it on your phone or your iPad or computer and, and do it that way, that's fine, too. All right. So Psalm 114, let's pray and read this and we'll, we'll get to the notes. Thank you, Father, for your awesome love. We fix our eyes on you and we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ at your right hand, your awesome son, the expression of your love in history on the cross. Now poured out in our hearts by the holy spirit. We love you. We bless you. We worship you We adore you god. We only get this one shot here living on the earth And we want to make it count, but we do that first by being in awe of you And entering into deep relationship and fellowship with you And I pray that that would be our testimony and our experience that you would draw us closer to you And make us more like jesus in that relationship we pray that we be like Jesus individually, and as as a corporate family, Lord, as the family of God throughout the earth. Make us like Your Son, that You might have the perfect testimony in the earth. Inasmuch as He is the head, we are the body. Let it be so for the fulfillment of Your own desires and for Your glory and Your purposes to be fulfilled in the gospel, in the kingdom of God. And may this night. Contribute to that end by your Spirit. Let freedom and truth in the Holy Spirit, righteousness and joy in the Holy Ghost reign tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Just a few thoughts from Psalm 114. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language... Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. So I want us to pause and just take hold of that for a moment. OK, this is an allusion, of course, to the liberation of the nation of Israel from Egypt. And what this text is saying is that when they came out of the, the nation of Egypt and, and then illustratively right, a people of a strange language, when the house of Jacob was no longer in a foreign situation Then Judah became his sanctuary. Right? So the house of Judah, really referring to all of Israel, seems to be focusing through Judah. But the parallel is Israel in the next line. We're talking about God's people. They became the place where he dwelt. And then another way of saying it, expanding on that thought, in the second part of verse 2, Israel became his dominion. So in one sense the same Hebrew word for kingdom is dominion there. I don't know what your translation says. Mine says dominion. The word there is the same for kingdom. Israel the, the nation itself was the dwelling place of God and was the physical expression of God's kingdom. Pretty good. That's way back in the Old Testament. A lot of people don't know those verses are back there about the you know God dwelling in. I mean it certainly is there. It's more fulfilled in the New Testament, but we got color commentary in the Old. So God him, Himself was embodied in His people, and His kingdom, in one very real sense, was His people, in some sense. So, now, watch the response here, that nature itself is rocked by this group of nomads coming out of Egypt, ex-slaves, but because God is with them. If you would, in the spirit realm, the, the nature can see that Yahweh is among these people, and Yahweh's rule is embedded in these people. It says in verse 3, the sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. And the poet asks here, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? He's asking in mockery because nation itself is submitting to the presence and dominion of God in his people. Jordan, why are you? What ails you that you're turning back? In verse six, mountains, what is ailing you that you're skipping away like rams? And hills that you're skipping away like lambs. You know, this is like a a poetic way of of describing with with a lot of pizzazz. You know, the the parting of the seas, and and probably there's perhaps an allusion to things in the spirit realm moving out of the way as God Himself is marching through the wilderness through his people. And it's like the spirit realm can see it and they're just shocked and they're storming out of the way. That's a powerful picture of God in the middle of his people. God by nature is the incarnate God. He loves to work in and through first his son, foremost his son Jesus who himself is God, but in the flesh during his days On the earth, and now through his people, he dwells in us and expresses himself through us. And then, verse 7 tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob. It's not just a trembling before his people, but ultimately, it's God in his people that is what is at issue. Amen? This is the secret of the nature of God and the people of God that God is in us and expressing his nature through us. So tremble before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Praise God. Well, let's look at your notes here and recap just briefly from last week. I have here section one recapping the last unit. We talk from Matthew 16 that the church grows out of a demonstration of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. So the seeds of the kingdom is what grows the true church, right? Our, our our first concern, we're told, is to seek first the kingdom of heaven. So we talked about how planting a church is not first done by just planting a church, but it's it's about receiving and bringing the kingdom, and the kingdom creates the church. And you can you can listen to that. Uh, I think we have it posted still. The the link may be on the the Facebook site right but then it'll take you there and then letter b ephesians 3 we talked about the church is the supernatural physical revelation of god's wisdom i think i'm missing an of there you can carrot that in but the church is the supernatural physical revelation of god's wisdom that's supernatural heavenly wisdom in real time and real space to the societies of heaven and earth that the church is meant to demonstrate the wisdom of God, even to the powers of the air. Well, that's a powerful calling. We find our identity, in letter A, in our king. Not in ourselves. Not in the way we do church. Whether it's institutional or it's house church oriented. We're not going to find our identity in our style. We find our identity in our king. Amen. When the kingdom is real, a people are created. Amen. Well, then, letter be here, the point is that the church then becomes the physical embodiment of God's manifold wisdom. What is God's plan? What are his ways? What does God look like living his life on the earth? Well, that's seen in the person of Jesus Christ and then in the church that's rooted and founded in Jesus Christ. The, the, the church is God's testimony to the earth and especially here to the powers of the air. Wisdom is referring to a way of life, God's ways, the knowledge of God worked out in practical living. The church demonstrates this by showing the way of salvation, by demonstrating a supernatural unity, especially in the context of Ephesians. Disunity is what defines the nations. So the rebuke to that and the alternative to that should be the unity of the saints that demonstrates God's wisdom, a supernatural love that transcends all other kinds of division. That's only in the church in Christ. And then number three, not number three, but a third way. I didn't give you numbers for this. A third way that God's wisdom is manifest in the church is through a kingdom way of life. This is communicate communicated to the evil powers that rule the world. That happens through the church, which is the colony of heaven's government and and a colony of heaven's culture amid a hostile world. That's the church. This has always been a burden of mine since as long as I could remember being saved. And it really began to crystallize in my heart in October of 1996. The identity of the church. This is most important. That we we not be defined by the arm of the flesh or by the plans of man, but by the presence and nature and ways of God. Our prophetic mandate, as we talked last week, uh, two weeks ago, is that God is doing a new thing. It's not new to him. It's new to us, but it's new. It's not even new to some people alive today, but to us, it's a new thing. And there's a new wineskin that God is preparing for an outpouring of new wine. And I, re- I reference the new Jesus people, an entire message that I have that I didn't give here. And perhaps I will sometime. But we're not going to uh, stop on that now. We've got to keep moving forward. So we also spent a little time defining some of our values, which we'll do with, with greater focus and clarity today. Uh, number one, we, we focused on some of the values that we'll be holding in God's supremacy. Uh, God is what's most important. And as God's people, we're about God, first and foremost. And we we talked about that there's an element of mystery to following Jesus. Our vision is important, but it's not our light. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So we need a vision. Without a vision, people perish. And we need some direction, and that's what all these classes are for. But we give honor to the Lord. Ultimately, He's our light. We're just following Him. And we may see Him but not know exactly where he's going. And that's okay. We, we don't know all the details. I didn't know just a year or two ago that I'd be doing anything like this. And I'm sure you could say the same thing about aspects of your life. Jesus is the one who's our light. And we have to honor that element of mystery to following him. Yeah. Uh, amen. <laughs> I have to take out some verbal pauses that have been pointed out to me last time. That's why I paused there and corrected myself. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, my. We also talked about God's supremacy being a matter of our devotion to him. Our devotion is what defines us. Our devotion is what we're about. We're people of worship. His presence is our greatest, uh, our our most cherished possession. And we are a people of prayer. This has to be the the very grit and substance of Out of which everything else that happens will flow, just like the river coming out of the temple. We also talked about the teaching will be uh, right in the middle of hopefully of everything we do so that we can we can do that. uh, Acts two forty two thing where they were first committed to the apostles teaching. They carried the mystery of Christ and they revealed Christ in practical ways. So we want to look to the scriptures continually continually. Not only for the big macro kingdom issues, but everything to do with wisdom of life and relationships and finances and family and the power of God for evangelizing. We want to be dedicated to the apostles teaching. And we see that as like a river that will flow in the middle, hopefully, of everything we're doing with the house churches like little teepees on the bank of the river. And we move on. ...to today's theme of defining the kingdom. By the way, you see in your notes there at the very top, this is the King's People School of Wisdom. We're still in the orientation stage and will be for several more sessions. But we're looking at Unit 2 today, which is defining the kingdom of God. And, and by doing so, w- with the limited definition I will give you today, we'll identify our three core values. Now, I have on your notes there our three key core values. And so that's a little redundant. You can scratch out the word key if you want. Pretty much a key value is a core value. I guess key core is extra extra special and focused, but it was just a mistake. Um, I'm sure we can find some prophetic significance if we try hard enough. Or, or, Or maybe we don't even have to try hard. But these are going to be our three core values once we get to them as we're defining the kingdom of heaven. So just a little bit more on your notes, then we'll look to the scriptures again. But number two, okay, we're defining the kingdom. So what, I'm, what my goal to do today is, is to proclaim and to teach the kingdom of heaven. And I'm certainly not going to do that exhaustively. Jesus himself didn't do it in one message. He unpacked it for three years and still his spirit was unpacking it. Uh, as we see in the Scriptures after Jesus was alive from the dead in the rest of the New Testament, you know, they were still explaining the ways of the kingdom and, and proclaiming that revelation. So I'm certainly not going to uh, make a claim that we're going to exhaust the subject today, but we're going to hit some highlights that I feel are important for us at this point. And we'll, we'll do that out of Matthew 4 in a few moments. So just a few words about the kingdom of heaven. You know, what is it? We want to define it. And in defining it, distill these three values. So number two in your notes, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the dominant theme of Jesus' ministry in the first three Gospels that are sometimes often called, uh, that's sometimes often the synoptic Gospels because they're so similar to one another. It is also an important theme in John, but it's not as, as prominent in the frequency of the terminology. Of course, the theme is the same. But in in the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it it dominated Jesus' discourse. Preaching and teaching the kingdom. Demonstrating the kingdom. So it's important. Number three, a definition from the original words in Greek. The word for kingdom is basilea. And in Hebrew, malchut. In their biblical context, these are extremely uh, summarizing brief, Uh, definitions, but it's just something to hang the hat on. What does the word kingdom mean? Well, first in letter A, it referred to royal sovereignty or power. What we're talking about is the rule of a king. Where you have a king having authority, you have kingdom. The kingdom referred first to the actual rule or dominion of a king. Or his right to rule. In letter B, secondarily, it refers to the physical domain of Of that king's rule. The word domain is related to the the word from which kingdom comes from. Kingdom is a construction. Our English word comes from the word king and dumb. D-O-M from the Latin dominus, which means king, from which we get domain. So it's like the domain of the king. That's what our English word means. And that, that is what Jesus proclaimed. The domain of God as king. Number four. The kingdom of heaven... Okay, now we're going to penetrate this further and get into our definition. I'm going to give you a few aspects of really what the kingdom is. The kingdom of heaven is a person. This is the primary definition or expression of the kingdom of heaven. Letter A, Jesus Christ is king. And that is your kingdom. I'm not saying there's not more to say about it. There is much more to say. But the kingdom of heaven is defined by the son of David, the son of God. And when he is present and ruling, you have kingdom. Israel was still in a sense in exile when Jesus came to the earth. They had definition in their own land, but as then, and it's the same today, most Jews live outside of the land. They were waiting then for God to take up his His. More uh, His fuller rule on the earth. When God's people were no longer dominated by earthly governments, pagan governments, and their gods. But when Yahweh would get again be installed ultimately as king, and that in the form of the Davidic king, that was the good news when that would happen again. And that's what Jesus came proclaiming. He's saying that king is present again ruling in a greater way than before I was preaching this. The kingdom of heaven is here. I refer you to Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. To illustrate this point, Luke 17:20, Having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming... Jesus answered them and he said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And what he means by not having signs, he's not saying there will be no miraculous signs. There, there were miracles that indicated the kingdom. He's talking about the mysterious elements of the kingdom. That it would not have the obvious public political display that was in the popular notion of the people who were looking for the kingdom. Because they're saying, look, you're making all these claims. You're having this kind of impact. The hot shot. When is this kingdom coming? And Jesus is saying, see, you don't even get it. It's here. It's not coming with the kind of observable signs that you're looking for. Does this make sense? They were expecting a political overflow for, uh, overthrow for, for the immediate mixture of the supernatural and the political. And Jesus is saying, I've been bringing nothing but this kingdom since the beginning of my ministry. And you can't see it because it doesn't come with those kinds of signs. The kingdom is now in your midst. He was not saying there it's, with, it's inside of you, though that's true. He's saying because the king is among you, the kingdom is here now. And we belong to that kingdom. Amen. God's kingdom is not right now a geopolitical reality. It will be one day. But it's not now. But it's present nonetheless. And that is the kingdom we are seeking and manifesting. That's what we're about. So number one. The king's people, and I mean that generically, the king's people value their king above all. And that's the way we connect to the kingdom. That's the first way we relate to Jesus. We follow his teachings. I said it before last time we met, I'll say it again. We are first about Jesus. We're not about the way we're, you know, for those of you that are that are feeling like you're going to. To be joining what we're doing. We're not about defining ourselves in contradistinction. We don't do it this way. We do it that way. We're going to do things a certain way. But that's not what defines us. What defines us is our relationship with Jesus Christ. With our ongoing discovery that he's real. And he's alive. And his gospel flows like a river to save souls. To heal bodies and, and families and minds. and To bring healing to the nations. Praise God. So we value our King above all. That's the kingdom. Our eyes are on Him. Number two, I have a, a reference here. I wanted to give this to you for now. That, that our eyes are on Jesus. I have the reference to the seven beauties of the King. Do you have that in your notes? That, that's something that I have developed in my own heart before the Lord devotionally. I'm not going to explain all of it to you now, but my main thing is that we are fascinated with Jesus Christ Because he's beautiful. And I define these beauties. I feel like, you know, this is not like uh, dogmatic, it's not definitive, but the Lord has given it to me to help me uh, just understand who Jesus is and relate to him. But I've developed these seven expressions of the person of Jesus as king. I call them the seven beauties of the king. And they're based on my take of David's personality and function as king in the Old Testament though the doors are blown off that and completely fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. But, but David, being the greatest figure, a prefiguring Christ in the Old Testament, I believe manifested seven beauties. He was more than a king. Because he was God's king, he related to God, first of all. And God made him king, but as God's king, he was so much more than a political ruler. He was a son That's one of the beauties of the king. Jesus is the son of God. He's the child of heaven. And to relate to the king and relate to his kingdom, you have to be converted and become like a child. Didn't Jesus say that? See, this kingdom is like no other kingdom. Because its king is like no other king. I mean, nothing like that. I mean, his kingdom is defined by meekness. How many kingdoms are defined by meekness? How many kingdoms advance by, by going low and down to advance. It's always dominate, come over. But this kingdom is the kingdom of children. It's ruled by the great child Jesus. I'm not saying he's Mary's little baby. I'm saying he's the, the son of the father. That's what being in the kingdom and being royal is. It's learning how to be a child. I'm, gonna, I'm I have to be careful. I'll expound on each one of these. David was a man after God's own heart. He was interested in God. He, he spoke in terms of adoption in Psalm 27. You know, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but Yahweh will take me up. I have this father-son relationship. and That wasn't crystal clear in the Old Testament like it is in the New, but David was like that. He was this child before God, a dancer, uh, one who trusted. You, you see what I'm saying. He, the, his first appearance is the smallest With the beautiful expression and despised by his brothers because he was so innocent and pretty boy. He loved God and God just delighted in that. He was interested in God's heart. He was interested in God's feelings and emotions and his personality. That's what it means to be kingly. Anyway, another beauty of the king is that he's a shepherd. That's one of the main expressions of what being a king is. I always see king as the dominant Identity of Jesus, because he's Christ. He's named that. So he's king. But what does it mean to be a king in God's kingdom? Well, first, you're a son or a daughter. You're a child. And secondly, not necessarily in this order, but anyway, secondly, he's a shepherd. Kings are shepherds. They care for a flock. They have compassion. They lay down their lives for sheep. They nurture them. They heal them. That's what a king is supposed to do. In the world's idea of kingdom, those are usually concepts that are divorced. And if a king had a shepherd's heart or some kind of great uh, political leader had a shepherd's heart, we would say that he or she is a a, a great leader and also really cares for their people. But in God's economy, you wouldn't say, and he also happens to care. You would say, what else is a king but a shepherd that lays down his life for a sheep? And looks for them and nurtures them and heals them. I see one of the functions of the king as prophet. He knows the mind of God and brings revelation. This is one of the beauties of the king that we are to adore. Jesus is the word become flesh. He communicates all that God is. And gives us the spirit so that we're in the know. We are not slaves, we are sons. And therefore we have prophetic knowledge. Jesus is the one who is the greatest prophet because he's king, as David had prophetic uh, functions in his, his royal role. Peter said he was a prophet. The, the king is also teacher. I see this as, these can be blended, of course, they all overlap, but I see one of the beauties of the king as a teacher of righteousness. He, he imparts the knowledge of God. He doesn't just have classes but he imparts the knowledge of God. In Jeremiah chapter 3, that God, God says, in contrast to the apostate rulers of his day, he said, I will appoint for you shepherds that are after my own heart. And that's an allusion to David. And the idea is that they will teach the people in the actual knowledge and ways of God rather than keeping them from it. Another dimension of the king, another one of his beauties, is that he's ruler, of course. He's ruler. He's ruler. And that's why we call him Lord. And under that category, I would see him as judge. So, yes, he's the tender-hearted shepherd and we can trust him in that beauty. But make no mistake, all of heaven and earth will stand before him and give account on that day. He is God. So it's not just one of these beauties that we focus and park on, but it's all seven we adore him. And I think we're on number six here. He's also lover as David was a lover. And I don't mean that just romantically. I mean that with God. He was a real worshiper. I already talked about this, relating it to his sonship. So I'll just say it here. I guess I blended them together. But David really loved God. I mean, he really, he had it in his heart that he adored God. He was terribly interested in who God was and and really was deeply appreciative and loved to spend time with him. And, And for most of his life, that was really his main fascination. Jesus is the same way. Even Jesus, being God as the Son, spent so much time with the Father. He just loved the Father. And also, finally, the the, the seventh beauty, just as the way I define it, the the King is a warrior. And all of these relate together. Any real lover will fight for the causes of God and for for the heart of the beloved and against the enemies of the beloved. And David was a warrior and Jesus is a warrior, though his battle is not with flesh and blood. But against the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And we're going to talk about that next time. But for now, I'll just leave you with these seven beauties for you to think about. You say, well, I really see them differently. Well, you know, this was just to help me. But the point is that there's different expressions of what it means to be the king. And and our our core value is to adore our king. Amen. Amen letter (laughs) B. Oh, my. Jesus derived his sovereignty from God, not from people. I think I leave you things now to write. We know that that's obvious, but I'll just give you some verses here. Matthew twenty one, twenty three through twenty seven. Jesus derived his sovereignty from God, not from people. It's a lovely story there when Jesus is confronted by other religious rulers. And they say, where did you get this authority? He says, well, I'll ask you a question first, which already implies not from you. (laughs) I don't have to play your game, but he was cool and tried to be helpful. They didn't take it. So they didn't want to answer his question about John the Baptist, which was proof that they derived their authority from people. Because their answers were predicated on what people thought. And that was a revelation of where they got their authority. And Jesus just said, well, if you want to answer my question, I want to answer yours. I don't owe you an explanation, which right there shows you he gets his authority from heaven. He actually answered their question if they were wise enough to understand it. Nor, of course, did he derive his authority from the demonic powers that ruled the world. We see that in Jesus' temptation narratives. When he battles the enemy in the name of God, Matthew 4 and Luke four. So he embodied God's kingdom no matter if he was obeyed or recognized or not. His kingdom was not derived from people. It was derived from God, which means he was and is and always shall be king. His kingdom will have no end. Therefore, let us see God's people in a very real sense also constitute his kingdom. I give you verses there. I already looked at Psalm 1. Do you have verses there? See Psalm 114, given second. We looked at that at the beginning. Exodus 19, 6, where God declares, you will be a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2, 9 repeats that. And of course, Revelation 1, 6 and 5, 10 refer to God's people being His kingdom, a kingdom of priests. So in some sense, you see the kingdom is not some abstract theory. In some sense, God's people in their devotion and obedience to the king and in their manifestation of God's life, they are the extension of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. When Jesus taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come, much of that had to do with God expressing himself through his people. In his royalty, in his majesty. To me, this is the root of what church is. You don't don't get the, the real substance of church by trying just talking about church. To me, that comes a little later. You have to start with kingdom. When Jesus was revealed as king, when he was recognized as Christ, then Jesus said, I will build my church on that rock. That's what we're after. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying right now. You understand the the, the pattern. I want this to be DNA. We're going from the macro to the micro. Down the road, we'll talk about what this means practically. In fact, a little bit here today. But the main thing is we have to get a vision for the kingdom and the way that I believe the Lord is moving us. Number five, which is our second element to what the kingdom is. The kingdom of heaven is a time, in a sense. It is a season. This is a secondary definition. Jesus' visitation in the first century began a new era, a new season in God. The last days that are continuing even today. We know that there's a period that is the last of the last days. The day of the Lord. But also, according to Acts 2, we're living in the last days. Because this is the last era before the king returns and sets up his kingdom physically. Mark 1.15, it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he said the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of heaven was a, was a season when God would, would act on behalf of his people in certain ways. And when Jesus appeared on the scene in the first century, about 30 A.D., he said, OK, that time is now. It's happening now. All those promises from the Old Testament that indicated God would act as king again in this fulfilled way or in a way never fulfilled before that is now that era is now and there were many things that characterized that era that they looked forward to they were looking forward to the golden era of David's reign it was a time when the, the nation would be restored it was a time when the spirit of God would be given to all people it was a time when the dead would be raised it was one of the marks of the kingdom that they were looking for It was a day when the law of God would be written on the hearts of all who would believe. These are the elements of the new covenant. They were the days when Yahweh would rule with a mighty hand in a pronounced and new way. Jesus said when he came preaching, he's saying that season is now. It's here now, right now. So when John the baptizer had his doubts and sent messengers from prison, are you the one or not? I don't get it. I mean, liberation is the name of the kingdom and I'm in prison So, what's the deal? Jesus said, Go tell them the signs of the kingdom are happening. The blind are seeing, the deaf hear. The poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. I'm not bringing the kingdom your way, I'm bringing it God's way, but I'm bringing it nonetheless. This is our kingdom. Praise God. We are inheriting a great kingdom, it will never be shaken. It will never be shaken. It won't be shaken in the middle of economic turmoil. It won't be shaken in the last day's judgment. It will rise supremely when Jesus returns, but like pure gold. And this is the kingdom we inherit now. Letter B, Jesus did not yet transform the political or physical environment, but he will. So the kingdom is also a future event that will end the present era. Right now they are they are overlapping. In letter C, this is the mystery of the kingdom of God. It has come. And it is coming. It's both. It's not one or the other. Sometimes even people today, they struggle with it because they react to teaching that puts the kingdom too much in the future. And so they say, well, it's here now. And we don't even say it's already, not yet. It's just already. And that's become a popular teaching. And I'm certain that's not what the Scriptures teach. There is already and not yet. I've, I've even heard it said that's not even in the Bible, but it is in the Bible. It's in 1 John 3. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. That tension is in the Scriptures. The parables of Jesus. We steward resources now so that we're ready when the king comes. It's not just waiting for the king. It's occupying and working because he's coming and because the kingdom's here. But it's not just because the kingdom's here. It's because something greater is coming and there is a reward. So it's both already and not yet. The timeline of the past continues. Yet the future has come. In Christ, He defeated the the evil powers of sin, death, and the devil right there at the cross when He came in time. Amen? They're defeated. We don't live under their dominion. We live under His dominion. But this old age persists. Its powers are defeated, but they continue to exist. While the powers of the age to come also exist and are present in God's people. We live in that tension. We have the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are not just hoping we get him someday. I think it's fine to pray for more, but we need a revelation that the Spirit dwells within us. But We also have the flesh. You may have noticed there's war. We live in the tension. Some of you have some of you wake up in the morning sometimes singing in the Lord out of your subconsciousness of sleep into your consciousness, singing in the Lord like God's nightingale. You come right out of dreams of the Lord praying in tongues. So Smith Wigglesworth would wake right up and start praying in tongues. He danced before the Lord first thing in the morning. Just, what if you don't feel like dancing? He said, I'd never ask Smith if he feels like dancing. You feel that Holy Ghost. Well, guess what? Sometimes you wake up in the morning, you don't feel so saved, Holy Ghost. You ever had that happen? It's a minor example, one might say, but it illustrates. You're no less born again child of God if you don't have all the feelings. We live in an age of tension. They're both. The more we cultivate that great kingdom, the more pronounced it becomes in witness and lifestyle. So already, not yet. That's why we have Jesus' parables about waiting faithfully, but working in kingdom work while we wait. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that not in vain is a reference to the future. As you take that in context, First Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection and the age to come right not in vain amen it's that's a reference to the rewards at resurrection so it's both now and not yet all right number 6 let's just move on man i might go a little late today i've got a lot to give the kingdom of i might go a little late that's might and little i might go a little late so you feel very safe now very little, very little that that might perhaps I don't know. Number six, the kingdom of heaven is a place. Though this is a third-level definition in, in both as a concept and in chronology, the, the, the primary definition is the rule of Jesus. But there is something of spatial dimensions to the kingdom, though that's not the primary definition. Letter A, God's kingdom presently has spatial dimensions in heaven. Do you have verses there? Psalm 103:19 is. I think the, the main one for where, you know, where it is now, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. So there is, there is, there is a, the, the purest form of the kingdom without interruption or inhibition in the heavens. That's why we're taught to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So we bring it, In the Spirit, through our lives, through our speech, through our activity, in the Spirit. But its dimensions are in the heavens. One day it will consume heaven and earth. Renew everything. And the the spatial dimensions of the kingdom will be as real as everything else. City, earth, heaven. It's going to be quite a deal. You think of lower creation. I don't know if you're a physicist like me. um, I'm not, of course. I'm joking. But I have this physics for dummies book and I'm reading I read the same lines over and over when you read about the, the, the 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 multiplied billions upon billions upon billions of stars that make up one galaxy and there are multiplied billions of those galaxies that are multiplied billions of light years apart in the observable universe the observable universe and that's lower creation is that vast It's mind-boggling. I can't even begin to think how mind-boggling. I have no idea how mind-boggling is. Just to read the information. By an actual physicist. It's not a Christian book that I'm reading. It's phenomenal. It's multiplied hundreds of billions light-years across the universe that we know. And this same physicist, he's, he's, um, well, whatever. He's a physicist. He's the real deal. He said that of, of, of the observable universe, 23% is dark matter. That means we know it's there, but we don't know what it is. And 70, uh, 71% is dark energy. That means we know it's there, but we don't know what it is. That means 96% of our observable universe. We know it's there, but we don't know what it is. And that's lower creation. And by the, way, where, by the way, where does that put all the naturalists that say only that which can be measured by science is real? Science tells us we don't know most of reality. It's science tells us that. If this cat is telling me the truth, he's a very famous physicist. He teaches at MIT. So I'm assuming... Walt Lewin is his name. Some of you may have heard of him. You can see his stuff on, on YouTube. He's like one of the most famous teachers. And um, he's, he's, he, he's the one claiming, based on, you know, th- studies, <laughs> 96% of the universe we know exists is unknowable to the human mind at this point in time. So, that first of all, that should really put us in our, in our place, Psalm 8. It's like, well, what do we know? We don't know anything. And here people are saying only the observable, only what can be measured by science is real. It's like, really? You've just admitted you don't know anything. You know 4%. And you don't even know 4%. This is for scientists. What do we know? This is a vast creation that will be renewed. The kingdom of heaven, when it becomes spatial reality to us, will be massive and awesome. Praise God, greater is he who's in us than he who is in the world. Or to quote Elisha, speaking to his servant, there are more for us than against us. Oh man, I'm trying not to preach, but it's hard. Okay, we're moving on. Reflections from Matthew 4:17 through 25. These are the three core dimensions of God's kingdom, the way I'm presenting them tonight. And they constitute our core values, the big three. So turn with me to Matthew 4:17. Now that I've finished the preface to my introduction, I'm just joking about that. You guys, you guys all look great. Everybody looks like they're, they're doing well. But would it help you to stand and stretch for a minute? No? Yes? What, what, what do I go by now? Let's just stand for a moment. Just for a moment. Stretch a little bit. Good stretch. Okay, here we go. we got a lot to do. <laughs> this will be posted, God willing. We're, we're posting these. Uh, we, and as um, far as we know, we are recording this internally, which means the quality should be better than the last time we recorded it on the iPad. So you can re- re-listen to this, reference it again if you wish. And i also try to pr- um, post these notes. Would that help or it doesn't matter? you got them. We'll see. Okay, so let's look at the text first, and let's just read through this. Let's, four seventeen to twenty five. Let's just read the text, and we'll refer back. Okay, from that time Jesus began to preach. Now Matthew likes to put things in, in reference to time at times, and this is after the temptations, and then after, according to Matthew's way of telling the story. Okay, John fills in gaps. But the the first three Gospels focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, not exclusively, but mostly. And so in verse 12, if you would go back a little bit, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And that was to fulfill that passage from Isaiah 9, that that, that that region, which is mostly inhabited by Gentiles at this point, would see a great light. And so Jesus knew that that was talking about him. So led by the Spirit in that text, he he broke through to his ministry in Galilee. Okay? This is after John's imprisonment. So in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, And they followed him. Verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill. Those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now I'm seeing in that passage from verses 17-25... The three core dimensions of the kingdom that I feel we have to have in our hearts right now. And that also, like I said, constitute our three core values. These are not things we've mastered. These are things we valued and we're going after. I see the first one. You'll see them in your notes in a second. But the first one is encapsulated in verse 17. Jesus called to repentance because he's announcing the kingdom. That reveals the first dimension of the kingdom that we'll look at. The second one is his statement to his disciples to be... As he called them to follow him. So, first, there's the proclamation of the kingdom. Second, hey, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. That's the second dimension. And then the third dimension of the kingdom is this public impact through healing all of these people who had all kinds of major problems, physically, mentally, and emotionally. All right? So, number seven, the announcement and call to repentance in verse 17. In reference to that, this call to repentance is a revelation of the kingdom as... Do you have that there? Dot, dot, dot. Alright, so here's the subpoints. It's all one main point, but I'm going to break it down here this way. Like we've already said, letter A, this assumes God's supremacy. When Jesus is announcing the kingdom, one of the things he's saying is that, that the God of Israel is supreme. And now, of course, he's acting in a whole new way. It's consistent with the old, but it's, it's all fulfilled now. He's doing everything he promised. So this is the supremacy of God. That's, that's one of the key things about the kingdom. God is invading because he's sovereign. This was the appointed season, so he came. God is king. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. When it was time for him to come... He didn't have to, you know, rearrange a bunch of furniture, make all these deals with the devil. He just came. Jesus, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. He is sovereign. His ways of operating in his sovereignty are mysterious. He's created a a universe of free will beings. It's remarkable, but he remains sovereign. And in that sovereignty, he puts claim on the souls of people. It is implying that he is God by the sheer fact that he's calling people to repent. I have claims to your life. This is not postmodern America, this kingdom that Jesus is preaching, where everyone is a moral island unto themselves, and whatever feels good, whatever makes you happy in expressing yourself, because that's what's important, well, there you have it. That's reality and that's morality. Jesus' worldview is entirely different. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. Now, to put it in some, some terms that might be more sensitive to a postmodern way of thinking, Jesus might still say, look, you'll find your fulfillment if you get out of yourself and into him. You'll find yourself then. He did say that. If you'll save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. But the point is this. God, as king, has the right to call for our repentance, Because He has a claim to our souls. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. Amen. So against the Old Testament background, of course, the call to repentance, a well-known call of the prophets, was to return to the Lord. Oftentimes during national apostasy, where they've replaced Yahweh worship with idolatry. And of course, that causes all kinds of sin. Self-made religion, or just selfish living, Jesus calls us, first and foremost, in terms of the kingdom, to repent and serve the Lord fully. That's a core aspect of the kingdom. Not just repenting because we feel bad for sins all the time. Not just returning from the negative, but turning to the Lord. It's a lifestyle of Godwardness. This call to repentance assumes God's greatness and His goodness because He's worthy to turn to. So again, we value above all things God. He's supreme in our affections and our practical life. Letter B, this same call to repentance, also reveals the kingdom as God's invitation to salvation. This implies God's love and His gracious intervention. They have come. These are glad tidings of great joy. Have you ever heard that? The announcement of the king. That was not just the peanuts. That's not just the Charlie Brown special. That's taken right out of Luke's gospel. What we bring you is are glad tidings of great joy for all the people. This is for Israel and the nations. Isaiah 52:7 you know how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news Israel's God in the hearts of his people are being uh, he is being reinstalled as king exile is over God is here his kingdom is here come and feast on the banquet of his goodness This is what the kingdom is It is God's supremacy it is invitation to salvation And very importantly, for our purposes, and this I need to take a little time on, let her see Jesus' call to repentance is an expression of God's judgment. Now, don't be afraid. I want to explain what I'm talking about. What I mean by judgment is God's verdict. God has judged that sin is sinful and that people are guilty. But He has decreed a solution from His royal court. And in this preaching, it is summarized by the message, repent. This is what I'm talking about. When I talk about judgment in this context, and this is the way the Scripture does too, There's times in the Bible that judgment is clearly referring to punishment, but that is not the only way the word judgment is used, used the word judgment. And the concept that I'm working with here is talking about God's decrees, what he chooses to do on the basis of his nature and then announces and executes that is judgment because God's making judgments. And God's first real judgment to sin is to say, look, let me provide a way out. My judgment is what I'll do on my son and call you to repentance. That's the judgment of God. That's that's what he decreed to do in his royal court. Kings make judgments. And in the scriptural point of view, even the kings of the nations are expected to some degree to, d- d- To execute law according to the ways of God, a a divine decision is in the lips of the king. He ought not err when he what? When he judges. That's in Proverbs. There are times in the prophets and even in Psalms where God calls the gods, you know, the the angelic fallen powers of this world and their governments on the earth. He calls them to account and says, "You better kiss them. You better do adoration to my son." You better show discernment in the way you judge, because you dignitaries will be held to account. Kings judge, even kings of the world, governments, they make judgments, they make laws. These are decrees based on some kind of moral code, whether it's divine or human, but all will be accountable. We'll take this deeper. God is king. Do you have sub points to this? Number one, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Just listen and write as as you wish. God, as king, has the right to require repentance because he is the judge. Right? That's his decree. That's his decision. A call to repentance. It's an expression of judgment. Like I said, even in a postmodern culture. Number two, God's kingdom is expressed through judgment. Judgments, like the one here, this is an expression of a judgment. Repent. Judgments are the decisive rulings or pronouncements of the king. They don't necessarily refer to negative judgments or wrath. It sometimes does, but there's a generic application. Judgments refer to the king's decrees. Psalm 103, verse 6 is one illustration. I'm going to give you a lot. This is all over the place. You, and you're actually aware of it. Whether you realize it or not, I'll show you. 103, 6. Is that what I said? Psalm 103, 6. Listen to this. It's simple one verse. This is all over the place in the Old Testament. I'm just going to highlight some places so you get the feel for it. 1036 Psalm 1036, right? Yahweh performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. God has a, specifically has a heart for those who are oppressed, the widow and the orphan, and God makes decrees on their behalf. Mercy, help, salvation. That's what he's decreed. Judgments refer to the knowledge of the mind of God. And living and acting and pronouncing things in accordance with his mind and heart. That's why he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I'll show you what I'm talking about. We'll keep moving. Like I said, God's judgments are rooted in his nature, which is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Kings in the Old Testament judged. It's one of their main functions. They made judgments. The role of the king, specifically God's king, was to know his law, to know the heart of God, ideally, and to make judgments on that basis. I have here a reference to 1 Chronicles 18.14. Let's see what that's all about. Okay, right. Again, another summary statement, and this is of David's reign. This was the role of a king. David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and righteousness for all his people. That's what a king did. He administered justice and righteousness. He made decisions. Kings were responsible to execute God's justice and righteousness. That's the purpose of a throne. And so that's what kings did. You might remember the, the, uh, the story of Absalom, the way he conspired against David, and there was the, the temporary coup Absalom would wait outside the palace and intercept people who were going to the palace of David for what? For judgments. For certain legal decisions and disputes to be settled by the king or apparently by his court. I'm sure it was shared rooting back from from Moses' day when he needed help to make all these decisions. And Absalom would cry out and say, oh, there's no one available to judge you. And then he would give the the, the judgments for the people. And, and he said, oh, so that someone would make me king and I would judge fairly for people. This was the idea. He was intercepting people by, by a playing David's role before they got to David because this was the typical idea of the way the king operated. And the king was supposed to execute, like I said, justice and righteousness. I have here another passage. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 37, verses 28 to 31. Actually, I think I will turn there. For Yahweh loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They're preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. So here in verse 28, you have this Yahweh who loves justice, and he'll execute justice on the earth, and his people are like him. Uh, 1 Kings 3 5 through 14, and this is the important one. 1 Kings 3 5. You remember the story of when Solomon prayed. When God gave him one thing, like I'll give you one wish, kind of thing. This is that story. First Kings three, five. In Gibeon Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, Ask ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, You've shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you, and You've reserved for him this great loving kindness that you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, Yahweh my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many so, give your servant an understanding heart to judge. Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon your discernment as to what is good and evil. So I can judge and lead this nation in righteousness and do your will for them rather than my own or common sense or what might seem politically expedient. This is an awesome prayer that a ruler of other people would throw himself at God and say, I'm ignorant. And then not long after this story, I think it starts a few verses later, there's the story of the two women who are arguing over who is the baby, and Solomon knew how to judge. He had that supernatural discernment. So God himself was understood to judge as king. God was the ultimate king of Israel. He would bring judgments. I have some passages there. You can uh, look these up on your own. Isaiah 2, 1-5, and 33, 17-22. What I'm going to do is finish this point and pick it up after the judgment next time. Let me just finish the judgment topic. Is that okay? I think I'm almost done with this. Now, Messiah, who was God's anointed king, would judge fairly according to the promises of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, familiar passage. Let's look at some Isaiah passages here. Verse 9, 6. promise of the child to be born who would be king and we'll just start here Isaiah 9-6 a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father prince of peace verse 7 There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. form of justice in the universe is forgiveness based on Christ. Now, do people think this way naturally? No. This is, these are the judgments of God. And only through the Spirit can we bring the judgments of God. In fact, looking here at Isaiah 11, this is one of the great passages about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Testament about the coming Messiah, whom we know as Yeshua Mashiach, right? Jesus, the Messiah, he's the fulfillment of this passage. But looking here at the way he's described. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, that's, that's an, a reference to David's Building owned by the branch. Okay, and look at the, look at the way he's described. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The, the Jesse reference we're talking about king. That's what that's all about. This prediction one day, just like God promised David, and it happened. God always preserved the lamp for David, even when he was judging his people. A son would be born to this family who will be the ultimate king. And he'll be enabled to be the king because Yahweh will take his own spirit and put his spirit on that young man. And he will rule in the glory of the spirit of Yahweh. Not in his own brain, but in the spirit of God. So he's described, verse 2, the spirit of Yahweh will rest. Shut up. Faith, repentance, they come into total liberation because that's the judgment of the king on all who believe. Okay, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. I'm telling you, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit Listen to, listen to these attributes of the spirit. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. actually the spirit of the fear of Yahweh. This king would not be a self-made man. The very spirit of his ways would be the fear of Yahweh. His reference point is God, not himself. Only the spirit can enable him to fear God that much. To the point in verse 3 where he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. Okay, now that that's all in order, look at the next statement. And he won't judge By what his eyes see. You see, this judgment issue is central to the kingdom. This isn't some. where are you, what are you coming from this, bro? Out of the blue, this judgment issue, this is central to what it means to be a king. The first thing it talks about when he gets practical about what this divinely anointed Messiah would do, it says he won't judge with his natural eyes nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Do you understand? He would have supernatural wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear. It would all be supernatural. It's like Solomon with those two women. He's not going to go by what people are saying. He's going to judge in the spirit. Right? And look at verse 4. But with righteousness, he will judge the So righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The Messiah will be divinely endowed to make God's judgments supernaturally. This is very important, that he would not judge by what his eyes see. This is the point. Real kings cannot rule according to their natural faculties. And neither can God's people bring his kingdom according to their natural faculties. By the Spirit that we read described in Isaiah 11. The kingdom of heaven is all about people of the Spirit. It's, it's not just like believing the right things, that we must believe the right things. But the kingdom actually comes when real people live in the real Spirit. And they live according to the perceptions and the movements of the Holy Spirit, not their own natural faculties faculties. I'm not talking about the staffs at universities. I'm talking about seeing, hearing, thinking, our imagination. As the people of God, the saints are given authority because we have the kingdom. We have authority to judge. I don't mean pronouncing a bunch of negative things on people that annoy us. We've already defined that. I'm talking about discerning in the spirit the will of God That's where we'll, we'll start looking, and we'll just look at a couple of passages. This is a well-known passage of Scripture about the Spirit, and judgment language is from here through a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians. We're not talking about God's people walking around, pointing fingers at every possible demon they can think of, or just making all these you know self-oriented pronouncements that kills the whole point. Judgments are rooted in the spirit of Yahweh. When we were given the spirit of God, we were given the kingdom. We were given royalty. We were given the mind of Christ, which is, you know, Paul, what he calls the spirit at the end of this chapter, the mind of Christ. The the Greek word is is translating the Hebrew word for spirit because he's quoting the, the Greek Old Testament, but it's serving his purpose. It's the mind of the the Christ is king, the anointed one. The mind of the king is what we have. What's his perspective? What's his perspective on this rank sinner that keeps – have you ever been in a situation where someone keeps resisting you, but the Spirit's saying, no, on the inside, it's not as bad as it is on the outside? Be patient. Sometimes you actually have to turn away. I've had one time in a witness, the Lord said, leave right now. And I mean, every reason, I mean, there was anger, and I don't believe this, it's all hocus pocus, and I just have to sit there and endure this, and I'm like, well, this was a mistake, I felt prompted to get up from my seat, talk with this guy, and um, I guess I made a mistake, and he'd bring up some point that was so easy to argue, and i I wasn't sure I had, but I guess I guess I had it at the time because I kept obeying that prompting. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I hope I'm obeying the, a prompting, and it's not just. Prompting. Remember this. Oh, I forgot. Okay, next point. Um, this man is at a crossroads in his life. And I'm calling him to choose this day whom he will serve. And I'm thinking to myself, this dude does not sound like he's at a crossroads to me. He sounds like he chose his path and he's been on it for decades and he's ticked the like what I said had nothing to do with anything he said. He committed himself, it appeared, one way or the other about ten times, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in God. And I said, the Lord says to you, you're at a crossroads in your life, and you must choose today whom you will serve. And his head went down just like that. I could not believe it. Praise God. I didn't have a lot of these encounters, so I keep pulling this one up. Supernatural. I'm Back up and his countenance was different. I even felt a spirit leave our presence. Not the Holy Spirit, a spirit who had been speaking through this man. What was in his heart was not accurately represented with his mouth at those moments. As much as it seemed, and he wasn't quite to the point of blasphemy, but he seemed to have committed to his path. But in fact, on the inside, he was more conflicted, and the Lord loved him, and he had not crossed the line yet. And I, I would never. Said that in John 7. He said, don't judge by what your eyes... They were all fussing about whether or not he's Messiah because he didn't appear there. He's like, don't judge by what your eyes see. Judge with righteous judgment. Remember, he told that to Pharisees, to people, judge with righteous judgment. I had to make a judgment on the spot. What if I judged in the natural? I wound up corresponding by email with this man who wound up telling me that he did believe. But he was angry and disappointed. He told me of a plane crash. He's a pilot, Brian. Brian's a pilot. This will never happen to Brian. He, well, if, if it, this guy was preserved. He said, he cr- I knew it was God's hand of providence saving me when I crashed into these, these power lines and into the truth. He says, I, I felt called to be a missionary pilot. Things happened in my life to make me angry. And we got to have a beautiful conversation without the annoyance of aware of all this stuff that's royalty right there That's god's royalty this messiah would not judge by what his eyes see his ears hear we are his people we make judgments in the spirit not in the flesh come on now brother philip used to say for this we have jesus right for this we have the holy spirit are you facing a crisis are you facing a challenge for this we have the holy spirit Ironically, this passage is all about the Spirit. But even before we get to the thick of it, listen. He says in verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Alright, verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Guess what the word is in the Greek language? Determined. He determined. He made a decision. He, He made a resolution in his heart. Because I believe he had training that he could have used to help him persuade people. But he already made a decision. I don't trust that. And he was in an environment where speaking well was highly valued and very competitive. Almost like a sport in Paul's culture. So he said, I made a determination. I would not come to you trying to impress you with the way I spoke. I resolved that I would only be identified with this weak messiah. would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Which, by the way, that means it's possible to preach and do Christian ministry in the power of the flesh and still influence people who very may well have their faith based on the wisdom of men and not the power of God. This passage that I just read in terms of this kingdom idea of of making judgments in the Spirit, this should probably be given to every preacher and minister the West, or wherever, but especially the West, and concentrate on and say, hey, before you open your mouth, we're calling you to make a decision not to rely on the genius and the faculties of, of men, but on the power of God by daring to preach a message that promotes the weakness of the Messiah so the power of the Messiah can be demonstrated. In any case, my point is this. Paul said, I judge. not just my ministry. This is my life. This is my judgment that I would be conformed to the cross in everything. That's like one of the key judgments. Is this judgment being made in our generation? We wonder why there's powerlessness. Perhaps we're not making judgments that are kingdom judgments. To dare to be conformed to Messiah in his weakness. might be identified also with His powerful resurrection. But none of it is rooted or referenced in terms of humankind or this world and all of our fanciful ideas of how we're going to draw people to the gospel. It's the power of God. And we don't steward the power of God unless we make a resolution. We're going the way of the cross. And thereby the Spirit will be released to operate. This is not a small thing to me. Principle. This is the core of life. We must make kingdom judgments if we're to experience kingdom power. Oh, that ain't all. Let me show you a few other verses, okay? down a little bit, just a little bit. We're, we're almost home. Of course, in verse 12, we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Again, there's a the supernatural knowledge of the reality of. giving of the Spirit, that's who we have so that we can know the things freely given to us by God. Again, these are the things in verse 13 that we speak. There's your judgments. They're not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What I hear in the Spirit is what I speak, and I speak them in the Spirit. And he's not just talking about, you know, abstract, deep concepts. He's talking about the cross when he preaches the gospel, the resurrection of Christ. There was so much pressure in his culture to do things in a way that was immediately, outwardly, physically, and monetarily successful, and to be a hotshot celebrity as a speaker. But Paul says, I made a resolution. I won't go there. That's what the judgments of God are about. Jesus didn't preach repentance because just, well, that's what the prophets did. I mean, how many people preach repentance full of the spirit of anger? So what right content, wrong spirit? You don't just test the content. You you, you test the spirit. Anybody can read the Bible and pronounce it in spirit. That's what we're told in Isaiah 11. And then he made judgments. Look at verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's my word of translation in my Bible. Guess what the root word is in Greek? be evaluated, judged, and brought out all by the Spirit. Only the Spirit. And you do not have to be a theologian, an elite scholar or champion or speaker to enjoy this life. You have to be converted and become like a child. And dare to bow the knee and believe and have a relationship with God and have the Holy Ghost. Operate. Paul says if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Verse 15, but he who is a spirit person judges... judges. Judgment is primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spirit life and kingdom life and the spirit and family to which we are called by that gospel. You know, he goes on in chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but the, the, the Corinthians were tolerating the man sleeping with his stepmother, the incest situation. What does Paul say? You should have judged him. Judge those outside. What does he say? We judge those inside. That's not negative judgment. There had to be discipline in that case, but he's not talking about having a judgmental attitude. You say, brother, be careful what you say. You're going to give license to people. This is all supposed to be in the spirit and in the camaraderie of the This isn't some flippant. We just judge people. No, it's all in the spirit. Doesn't Paul say that? Galatians six. You who are spiritual, restore the one after chapter 5. What's in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians? Saints taking one another to law courts. Being judged by the ungodly. Paul's like, isn't there one man in Corinth wise enough to judge between his brethren? I don't know how many situations I've been in the church of God when there was no one with discernment to judge what was right. There was controversy And all the words, didn't matter who was right and wrong, the thing just was one big argument. There was no stature in God to bring a resolution to it in the Spirit. It all was just, everybody mouthing off their opinions. Where are the people of the Spirit who are conformed to the cross, who make a judgment that they will be this to begin with, so that they can make the judgments of the Spirit? Therein Together, And we thank you that you have been so generous to us to give us the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ's name Father, we don't take for granted that you've given your spirit We are reminded of the words of Jesus when he actually said It's to your advantage that I go away Because when I go to the Father, I will ask him and he will give you the spirit Father, could it be this period of time in our lives than to have Jesus himself here in our midst. To be people of the Spirit is such a great demonstration of your glory. We're asking you to have mercy on us where we've either failed to make resolution or we've we've resolved implicitly to be people who are natural and not supernatural. And we're asking you to have mercy on us and to help us be people of the Spirit in meekness, in a spirit of repentance and fear of the Lord, in conformity to the cross God and through God, help us to be
1: that kind
0: of people. Why bother, Lord, doing this or that work, or coming up with all of our tricks and whatever else, to to be a church or to reach people, if we're not people of the Spirit? Help us be people of the Spirit, the way Messiah was and is in Isaiah 11. May that same Spirit, who does Um, but for those who can stay and even those who need to get their kids and come back and you want prayer I'm making our team and myself available for a few minutes afterward just to pray So we can practice some of these things as we have time and ability to do so So if anybody wants prayer for anything, just feel free to come on up here and, and some of our folks will just surround you and pray for you Praise God. God bless you guys. For those of you able to come next week. We'll see you next week